it's an honor to be able to serve you um, tonight. And as always, it's like terrifying too. Um, welcome to part two, um, the second week of the table series, which is a series that actually stole off Rob, by the way. He preached at it, Westgate Baptist, and I loved it so much, loved it so much that we did the table series at Serious Coffee, our um, women's ministry here at BBC for like a whole term, 11 weeks of this. Um, so this series is based on a book by um, Tim Chester called Meals with Jesus. And in his book, he asked this question, which I thought was so interesting. And talking about Jesus, he asked this question. He says, how would you finish this sentence? And he says this. How would you finish this sentence? The son of man came blank. Now there are three ways in the, there's three ways the New Testament completes this sentence, the Son of Man came. Now the first one is found in Mark 10, and it says, The Son of Man came not to serve, but to be not to not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the other one's found in Luke 19. And it says, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. But it's the third one that I thought was so unexpected and so interesting. And I've read this multiple times, but this time it really jumped out at me. And it says this, the son of man has come eating and drinking. It's amazing. You see, all through the gospel of Luke, Jesus was either coming from a meal, at a meal, or going to, the, to a meal in the gospel of Luke. You see, Jesus loved to eat. And not just eat, but he loved to eat with people, all kinds of different people. And those first two son of man statements are statements of purpose. Why did Jesus come? He came to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many, to seek and save the lost. But the third statement is his method. How did Jesus come? He came eating and drinking. And it's a recurring theme right throughout. And because of the way he ate, Jesus is labeled a glutton and a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners by the religious leaders of his day. But table fellowship was so important to the mission of Jesus because in that culture, to eat with someone was a sign of friendship. It was a sign of intimacy. Now, during this table series, we are going to join Jesus at the table. And at these table encounters, we're going to find out some incredible things about Jesus and his ministry. And we will see that as he meets and has these meals with these up and comers, these down and outs, the in crowd and the outcast, when they're at the table with Jesus, there is something important and pivotal happening. So tonight, we're gonna to be looking at a table scene in Luke chapter five, but we're gonna take our time getting there. See, we're gonna go for a walk with Jesus and we're gonna see all the different people that he encounters. You see, in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus shows up on the scene, words like meek and mild aren't words that come to mind, no. When Jesus shows up in the book of Luke, heaven is ripping open, kings are bowing, demons are being dismissed with the word. Jesus has been preaching powerfully, saying, I am the fulfillment of prophecy. And when Jesus shows up in the Gospel of Luke, you get the feeling that he's exuding power and exuding authority. And then in chapter five, where we're gonna spend all our time, Luke, one by one, right after, one right after the other, starts to give us these rapid fire stories of Jesus beginning to move out and interact with different kinds of people. 
And he tells these short little stories all bunched together because they give us a full picture of what Jesus is like. And the people Jesus connects with and encounters are all people that he sees in their worst moments. Jesus intersects and interacts with them in their brokenness and shame. And listen, church, I hope you lean in and that you lean in all the way because Luke paints a beautiful and stunning picture of how Jesus will treat us in our brokenness and shame. Amen. Because the reality is all of us, all of us here have had embarrassing things happen to us. Yes, we all have had that. Like the time that I totally blasted my husband on the phone. Now, now I hope I'm gonna tell this story, but please don't judge me too hard because it happened a long time ago, but it's my most embarrassing and most shameful moment like ever. So uh, there's a long story short, I'm in Waikato for the day with a friend. I get dropped off like two minutes before my girls have to um, be picked up from school. And my girls are little, they're like five and seven at the time. And so I get home, rush to the garage, only to find that my car is locked and I can't find the car keys anywhere. Peter has locked the car and somehow has taken the keys and I can't even find the spares. And to make matters worse, it starts to hose down outside. So I'm like, ah! like in a, in a mad panic, like, ah, keys, what am I gonna do? And this is before cell phones, y'all. So I'm trying to call people on the telephone and nobody's answering because, and all my friends aren't answering because they're at school picking up their kids. And I'm just like, okay, what am I gonna do? And I'm trying to call the school office and it's busy and I'm trying to call my husband and that line's busy too. And I would love to be able to tell you that in that moment that I just prayed and ask God for peace and, and, you know, and for resolving. Can you show me what to do? No, that didn't happen. That didn't happen at all. I got myself so worked up, so like, like hysterical that I'm like, oh, what am I gonna do? And I'm running around the house like a mad person thinking maybe I get an umbrella and I can walk. It's too far to walk, but I'm gonna make that jaunt. And I thought I'll try one more time to call Pete on the phone. My husband, so I dial the number, I hear hello, a man and I just launch in. What are you thinking? Locking the car and I just let rip, man. It's very dramatic and I'm hysterical and I'm just Arr! Only to find out, it ain't Pete on the other end of the phone. <laughs> oh no, it's not Pete. It's his boss. Oh. Yes. I'm that psycho wife. I am, I'm psycho wife. Peter, he's so gracious. Like seriously, he's always so gracious all the time. The only thing he said to me when he came home that night was, you can take the girl out of the hood, but it's gonna be a while before the hood comes out of the girl. And I'm like, I know, I know, I'm still a work in progress. And just a side note, one of my, I got through to the school office and one of my teacher friends dropped my girls home so all was saved, but in reality, we've all had embarrassing things happen to us. But if we're honest, a lot of, a lot of us have embarrassing things about us. Things about us that we wish were different. Things about us that we wish we could change if we could, and not just shallow and surface things either, rather deep things about us that we don't want other people to see. And maybe for some of you, it's something about your past that you're not proud of. And you think that if they knew this about me, they wouldn't want to hang out with me. 
or and maybe your defense mechanism is to judge people and push them away before they can judge you and push you away. For others, it could be an addiction or habits that you're ashamed or embarrassed about, that there are places you go, things you do, things you watch, things that you have thought or said, things about you and your life that you wish you could change, but you can't. And many of us have at one time or another have experienced inside of ourselves feelings of shame. And it's exasperating when we get around people who we think are pure and perfect. You see, shame can be a powerful force in our lives. Guilt says, I did something bad, I messed up. But shame, shame internalizes. And it says, I am bad. And this feeling of shame that we carry for whatever reason can leave us feeling disconnected. Disconnected from other people, you kind of know me, but you don't know all of me. And disconnected from God and disconnected from ourselves because we try to hide the shame in us. And let me tell you this tonight. God does not want that story for you. Jesus does not want that story for you. My prayer is, is that as we look at these stories in Luke, that we would let God minister there in those broken places in us. Amen. Let me just pray for us real quick. God, you are so beautiful. And how you are with us is beautiful. And Bailey's already prayed that, but God, you're faithful when we're not. You are kind and merciful. And I love that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. So God, as we read these stories, I pray that we would see ourselves somewhere in there, God that you would uh, minister to those broken places in us. Thank you, God, that you want to. In Jesus' precious name, have your way, have your way in this place. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. So on Luke 5, Jesus comes on the scene and he's preaching powerfully. He's doing miracles because of the crowds and they begin to gather because they're interested in this guy. And Jesus is at the water's edge and he spots two boats there left by the fishermen who are washing their nets. Now there are so many people flocking around that Jesus hops in one of the boats, Simon Peter's boat. And he says, hey, row back a little bit. And Jesus starts to teach the people from the boat. The crowds can still see him and the water conducts his voice well. And it says this, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water. Whoops, one too far. We're getting there. Can you go back one? There we go. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let the nets down. Now, Simon, in front of this massive crowd, has to own up to the fact that he has fished all night and caught nothing. And I have to wonder if that was an embarrassing thing for him to admit. You see, for Simon Peter, fishing wasn't just a hobby. It was his profession. What do you do, Simon? Well, I'm Simon the fisherman. And the irony here is that Jesus, a carpenter, is telling a fisherman how to do his job. And Simon Peter says, uh, Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. Now, I say that. I mean, he could have just said, okay, let's go. But he says, but because you say so, I will do it. 
Is it because Jesus has touched down on something in Simon Peter that was a sore point and he reacts to it? And I don't know the tone that Peter used when he responds to Jesus, but every time I read this passage, I cannot help but think of how the great Italian director Franco Zeffirelli depicts Peter in this scene in his movie, Jesus of Nazareth. He portrays Peter, and I love it, as a surly and angry sort of character. And it, here's just a short clip of that, but please ignore the 1970s mystic funk because there is a little bit of that, but here's a short clip of this scene there. Go out again. I shall come with you. We've just pulled in. Get the nets off the boat. Please, Simon, do as he says. Why do you always listen to these people? Who knows a lot better than I? Please. Please. that. Come, you can preach to the fish. And in verse six, it says this. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. And so they signaled their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus's knees and said, get away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. You see, it dawns on Peter that the very thing he had no control over in his profession, like the elements in nature, Jesus has total control over. Peter gets very exposed. There's no hiding. There's no pretending. There's no justifying in that moment. He knows he has just witnessed something miraculous and divine. So Peter does the only thing he knows to do. He falls at Jesus' feet and says, get away from me. I don't want to be seen like this. Jesus, you don't want to be a part of this. I am a sinner. And what I love about Jesus is that he's not having a bar of it because he says in the next verse, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. And so they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything and followed him. I bet they did. You see, Jesus is in the business of taking shame away. He is the shame lifter. Peter wants Jesus to go away because he's a sinner. And Jesus says, no, Simon, I'm actually going to make you into something new, someone who can change the world. And that's what he can do with us. Jesus is in the business of taking our little lives and making them far more than we could ever ask or imagine. Jesus has the power to take your shame away, my shame away. And here's the good news. He wants to. The next story that comes up to, the next guy that comes up to Jesus is someone he probably should have gotten away from. And Luke tells us in verse 12, 
says that while Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. Now, leprosy was a disease that was contagious, and this guy is covered with it. So back then, if you had leprosy, you were ostracized and banished from the community. That was your shame, and you couldn't hide it. And it was the same law that talked about sin, that sinners damage community, so that meant that you have to get away from us. So these two things got meshed together, that sickness, disease, and being labeled a sinner became things you had to get away from and banished for because they were deemed unclean. And this poor man, in the midst of his shame, starts hearing about Jesus. And he takes an incredible social risk. He can either stay locked up in the isolation of his shame, or he can take a risk and go to Jesus. And he walks up to Jesus and he says, and when he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. What's interesting is how he words that when he says, Lord, you can make me clean. He knows Jesus has the power to. What he's not sure about is if Jesus wants to. I mean, do you ever think that way? That as I talk about God and say that Jesus can heal you and Jesus loves you, you're like, oh yeah, I know. I know, but inside, in your mind, you're thinking, yeah, he loves me because he's supposed to. He loves me because he has to, that God just puts up with me, that yes, I know God loves me, but I don't think he likes me very much. And this guy comes to Jesus and says, I know you can make me clean. I just don't know if you want to. And in verse 13, Jesus does something so radical. He reached out with his hand and he touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Imagine what it was like for this man to be someone who had been not denied human contact for who knows how long, probably years, to be isolated from your community only to have Jesus touch you. This is Venicio Riva as a boy. At age 15, he was diagnosed with the horrific disease that left painful boils all over his body, head to toe. And the photos of him as a grown man are pretty intense. But you can imagine that his condition isn't something he can hide. Strangers on the bus have yelled at him, get away from me, don't stand next to me. So he's gotten the memo that he's unwanted. His father refuses to touch him or be near him. And they say with people with his condition that the psychological damage is worse than the physical damage, as painful as it is. And most never leave the house until they die, but he decides to go with his aunt's aunt to see Pope Francis. And they didn't think they would be able to get anywhere near him because of the massive crowds of people. And as they showed up there, they kept ushering his wheelchair forward and they realized that they were right up against the barricade. And as they saw the Pope getting ready to emerge, Venetio kind of adjusted his expectation and figured that the Pope might touch his aunt's hand because she was holding it out and just give him a courteous glance and look away because that's what people do. But what he got was totally unexpected. See, the Pope walked straight up to him and hugged him for a full minute. His aunt said the Pope hugged him so tightly that I wasn't sure he would give him back to me. And then he put his hands on his head and he kissed him. 
When they interviewed Vinicio later, he said, I felt like I was in paradise. His aunt said that he's never been the same since. The way he sees himself and the way he interacts with the world, he has changed. Now, the Pope didn't heal the man. He can't. And yet, even that human kindness had a profound effect on him. And for the man who was covered with leprosy, pushed away from community, who came to Jesus and asked to be healed, the text says that Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Now, Jesus could have just said it with his words, be clean. But that word willing is the word fellow, which means I desire to, I want to. And what I love about Jesus is that he looks at this man who knows he's a mess, and Jesus says, I desire, I want to make you clean, be clean. And as you can imagine, Jesus's ministry just blows up and he starts, as he starts healing people, it makes him pretty popular amongst the sick community. And when lepers are getting healed, word spreads around pretty quickly. And the masses start flocking around Jesus and people think that Jesus has just come to heal their external dirtiness of their illness. And we are going to see Jesus is going to set the record straight. That he doesn't just want to deal with the external problems with shame. He wants to go deeper. And as Jesus is preaching to the crowd, sick people are trying to get into where Jesus is. And some guys take their buddy who is paralyzed. And because they can't get him close to Jesus, they literally rip the roof and tiles off this house and lower his paralyzed, this paralyzed man to the feet of Jesus. Man, it's good to have some friends like that, yeah? And again, Jesus does something radical. And it says in verse 20, that when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, friend, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins that, but God alone? Now, Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? but I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Jesus is like, which is easier? Tell him that he's forgiven or tell him to rise up and walk. I think the point of the passage is that Jesus is displaying his divine authority and his God nature hereby connecting the two. You see, Jesus is showing that he doesn't just want to deal with the external problem. No, he wants to deal with the root cause of sin. I don't think Jesus is saying that sin is what caused this man to be paralyzed, but he did see to the heart of this man's issue. You see, at the root of all our shame is sin, whether it's been sin done to us or sin done by us. You see, sin at its core says, I don't trust you, God, in this area of my life, so we take matters into our own hands. You see, God sees it all. He knows all the details of the hows and whys and how shame has come to your life, come into your life, and he knows. He sees the brokenness in us and what drives us to do and think the way we do. And Jesus wants to put his hands and heal us in that place. He wants to forgive us there in our most broken places and make you into who you were meant to be. And what's the key part of that? 
you acknowledge that you're sick. It says in Luke that after he healed that paralyzed man, all eyes are on Jesus. And as the crowds follow him, as he moves from town to town, and it says in verse 27, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Now that word saw is not just the word notice, it's the word observed. Jesus is observing Levi. So Jesus is walking around and he's got masses of people around him and he observes Levi in the tax booth. Now tax collectors were considered the scum of the earth back then. Because if you were a tax collector, you bought the rights from the government to take taxes from the people. And you would mark them up. You would mark them up what you took from the people to make yourself rich. Now all tax collectors were rich so the people know you're taking advantage of us. And because it's government sanctioned robbery, you can't do anything about it except hate you and make you feel really socially uncomfortable in our town. And Levi wasn't even that guy. Levi was hired out by the tax collectors to sit in the little booths to collect taxes. Levi is the guy who does the dirty work for the tax collectors in, in, to, and take their money like you see in mob movies. You see, in that culture, you couldn't get a more pathetic human being. They were even considered beyond redemption, beyond saving. And did you notice he's called Levi? which means he's a Jew, he's Jewish. He has sold out his own people. And Jesus sees Levi in the booth and he walks straight towards him in front of everyone. And he says two words, follow me. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. You know, some of the commentaries say that Levi must have met Jesus earlier because they don't know how such a short message of two words from Jesus would get Levi to stand up and leave everything. You know, I, I'm sure Levi has heard of Jesus, but I think the reason why Levi stands up, leaves everything and follows Jesus, because Jesus just preached a radical sermon by just walking over to him. The social implications were loud and clear. You are the most banished person, the most unwelcome in this community, but not to me, Levi. I don't care how far gone you think you are, I want you, follow me. And to understand that we have a God like that, that in the midst of the most broken and sad parts of us, he comes to us and says, I'm going to lift you up. I want to, I desire to, I want to heal the broken things in you. I'm coming for you, Levi. A God like that, you throw a party for a God like that. And that's exactly what Levi does. Next one. And it says, follow me, Jesus said, and Levi got up, left everything and followed him. And then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Levi throws this massive dinner party and invites all his mates and every sinner he can think of. Can you just picture it? Reminds me of that crazy slide Rob showed last week. It's crazy. 
And the Pharisees, the religious leaders are balking at it. They don't like that Jesus is doing this. Why is he hanging out with those people? And I love Jesus's answer. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I love that because in two sentences, not only does Jesus express God's heart, he dismantles false assumptions about God. You see, some think that Jesus is a condemner, that Jesus just shakes his head and wags his finger and says, you blew it again, didn't you? Shame on you. And maybe some of you didn't even want to come here tonight because you thought you would feel judged. And some of you think you deserve to feel judged. And Jesus is like, no, I don't do that. I mean, do doctors do that? Do they say, ooh, you're sick, get away from me? No, no. That would be a terrible doctor and you would need a new one. You see, doctors hang out with sick people and try to heal what ails you. And Jesus is like, I'm not trying to push sinners away. If you're a mess, that is who I'm looking for. I'm coming for you in the mess. I'm leaning towards you. The other false assumption is that though everyone is welcome and accepted at the table, absolutely yes. I think the false assumption is that no matter what, you can stay the way you are. That you just do you. You just be yourself and you do you. But listen to what Jesus says. I am the physician. I have come here for the sick. I mean, what's the assumption? What's the assumption at the party? Jesus is sitting at this table with Levi and all his friends within earshot of the religious leaders. And he says, I'm the doctor. I'm here for sick people. And you're like, hey, what are you saying? That I'm sick? Yes. <laughs> there is something broken in you. Yes, I want to be with you. And I'm here to heal the broken parts in you. Why? So you can be free to be who I created you to be. But we aren't meant to coddle our illness. We aren't meant to coddle our shame. There are parts of us that Jesus doesn't want us to hide, to defend, or pretend aren't there. He says, I'm here for the sick. In essence, Jesus is saying, if you want my healing, you have to acknowledge that you need it. You have to acknowledge that you are sick. Jesus can heal you, yes. He wants to take shame away. He wants to make you who you were meant to be. He wants to heal the deepest parts of you that you thought could never be made whole. And when you admit you need your need for a savior and follow him, you have no idea what's on the other side of your healing. You see, the common thread in all these stories in Luke 5 is that grace, compassion, forgiveness, freedom, mercy, is greater than shame. There's no more hiding. There's no more hiding. And the other common denominator is the transformed life. I'm a sinful man, Lord. Yes, you are, Simon. But I'm going to make you a fisher of men. I am unclean, God. Yes, you are, but I'm about to make you clean. I am stuck. Yes, you are, but I'm about to set you free. I'm an outcast. Yes, you are, but I have come to bring you into the family of God. You see, for Levi, he had no idea what was on the other side of his decision to say yes and follow Jesus. He had no idea that he would get a front row seat to see the ministry of Jesus. He had no idea that he would be in close proximity to the miracles of Jesus. He had no idea that he would get to hear the greatest teaching the world would ever know. He had no idea that he would get a, to see an empty tomb and be in the presence of a resurrected Christ. 
He had no idea that they would even get him and Jesus to share a meal together. And he had no idea that he would get to participate in the writing of the best-selling book of all time. You see, because Levi is his Hebrew name, Matthew was his Greek name. God used a tax collector, the lowest of the low in that culture, to write words that we read today, to tell the story of how God can change a life in the gospel of Matthew. And when Matthew sat down to write his own gospel account, he places his own story of Jesus calling in between two of the most significant miracles that Jesus ever performed, the story of the paralyzed man that we looked at and Jesus raising a little girl from the dead. It's almost like he's saying to all of us that his salvation is as miraculous as a paralytic walking and a dead girl being raised to life. And if you're a Christ follower here, May you marvel afresh at the salvation and the transformed life because it's a miracle. And if you're here and you don't know him, salvation awaits you. <laughs> and if you're hurting or broken, God wants to heal, to heal you. He desires to and he wants to. That's our Jesus. That's his story. That's our story. Amen? Amen. If I could have the band come out now, that'd be awesome. Stand, <laughs> and we will worship our God. Amen. You know, there is so much power when you share your story, your God story, not just with us, but especially with people who don't know him yet. <laughs> There's so much power in that. And Jesus has left us a great tool to be able to share our stories, a great tool that we all have access to. And it's the table. It's the table. It's where barriers are broken down. And whether it's the table in your home and it's over a lavish meal, or it's a, a table at a park having a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, was, which is my favorite, by the way. I love that. I'm so American or a cafe over a cup of coffee. I, I, the food is not the thing. The focus is not the food, it's this. It's connection, it's sharing together, amen. And Logan, can you put that picture up? That last slide for me, please. The, the end one. <laughs> one more, one more, back. Yeah, there we go. I cannot get last week and what we did, the meal that we shared and Nathan's baptism out of my mind, I buzzed about it all week long. It was so beautiful that we got to share together. See, here on Sunday nights, we're trying to create a community. We just don't want you to come and go. We want to fellowship together. And so during this series, we, Bree and the team, not we, Bree and the team, are putting on these amazing meals for you to share for you to talk and to tell your stories. And it's so awesome. So stay, talk, share, pray for each other. I don't know, but make some connection. I'm gonna get Rob up here to blessing over the food. This amazing food that Bree has cooked. Thank you so much, Rob.
Doesn't she preach well? It's awesome to have Mon on our team. Come on. I'm going to give thanks and then I'll share a benediction. We can go. Uh, Lord, we're just so thankful that yes, we can Lord. gather together, that we have gifted people in our midst who are willing to serve us and make awesome food. Thank you, Lord. Uh, Lord, we're just truly thankful for the fellowship we're about to encounter and enjoy together across the table. Uh, a place of salvation, yes. Lord, a place of mercy, Lord, a place of joy. Yes, Lord. And as we go from here tonight, Lord, may we know what it means to walk and step with the Spirit to lean into your mercy and away from the shame Amen. in our hearts and know you once again as Savior and Lord. And as we go, may God enfold you in his tender and lasting love. May Christ be beside you in times of struggle and may the Spirit guide you back to the path whenever you stray from it, that you may keep the covenant of love that he's put in your life. We go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And all the people of God said, Amen. 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 Bless you. Yeah, stay. Bye. Bye.